The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Wednesday, July 11th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the most troubling thing about Justice Brett Kavanaugh, shouldn't call him justice yet, we go back. So the most troubling thing about Judge Brett Kavanaugh, eh, maybe his partisanship or his disregard for stare decisis, his rather retrograde stances on gun control, and, you know, there's also the fact that he's a perfect embodiment of the charge of elitism. Listen, I'm not against elitism. I'm kind of pro-elitism. But this guy really was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and then spent much of his career taste-testing the cutlery collection of various members of the Bush dynasty. And okay, he's got some nice traits, too. He's smart. He's apparently something of the Brad Stevens of suburban D.C. girls basketball. That's great. Let me now list the least troubling thing, which isn't to say the thing that is not troubling. It is troubling, but it's on the list that probably comes in last. So it's ever so slightly troubling about Brett Kavanaugh, and it is this. Brett Kavanaugh, his Brettness, Justice Brett. Now, Stephen Colbert made fun of this last night. I've been thinking about it. But, you know, sometimes the comedians, they scoop the podcasters. But I got to say, Stephen Colbert, what with his Stephenness, and then you got Stephen Breyer on the court, it's easy for that guy to be pretty secure about making fun of the first name of a jurist. The first names of Supreme Court justices have an interesting history. Just recently, we had a Thurgood. What's, what's a better name than Thurgood? We're all good with the Thurgoods. Now, SCOTUS nomenclature started off fairly basic. We had a John, a John, a William, a James, a John, a James, a Thomas Johnson, a William, and a John. Now, to be fair, the second John and the last John I just read were both the same John, John Rutledge, but aren't they all the same John or James or Williams? But then, very soon thereafter, we had not a toe touch, but a rocket launch into the aggressively named universe Bushrod Washington, George Washington's nephew, Bushrod Washington. And thereafter, we had a uh, Smith, Thompson, Ward, Hunt, Morrison, Waite. Those aren't six people. Those are three. We had a Supreme Court justice named Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar II. Because once you got one Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar, got to keep making them. We had a Rufus Wheeler Peckham. We had a Hugo Black and a Felix Frankfurter just recently. You probably heard of those guys. We had uh, rejected, was a learned hand. The rejected names are some of the best. Ebenezer Hoare, that is uh, H-O-A-R Hoare of the, I believe, Massachusetts Whores. I believe he was known as the Beast. Roscoe Conkling, named to the court, or was to be named, refused to serve. And in the same period, we had a William Hornblower, rejected, and soon after, Justice Hornblower, a potential justice, Wheeler Hazard Peckham. And Wheeler Hazard Peckham and Hornblower, both nominated by Grover Cleveland. And now we have a Brett. A yearn for the days of Hornblower, Wheeler, and Grover, to say nothing of the thoroughly good Thurgood. I guess, though, when you think about it, we could have had a Judge Janine. On the show today, I spiel about Jim Jordan, talk about a couple of basic names and a kind of complex series of accusations that years ago, he did nothing while a coach at Ohio State as the wrestling team physician molested players. But first, Jim Brown. It's all Jim's today. 
Jim Brown was perhaps the greatest football player of all time. I happen to think he was. Now, because he played before television or before I was born and I could really watch him on television, I came to my opinion based on statistics, based on testimonials, but mostly based on legend. And it is the legend that we pursue here with a biographer, not only of Jim Brown, but of the current NFL player, Michael Bennett. Dave Zirin is in the house to talk about football, activism, and masculinity. About two months ago, Dave Zirin, who is the sports journalist and the uh, the nation's sports editor, published a biography of Jim Brown, possibly to this day recognized as the greatest football player of all time. Jim Brown's political stances in the 60s and 70s were seen as counterculture. Lately these days, you could see him on Trump. Interestingly, Dave Zirin, the same Dave Zirin, about a month before that, came out with, well, it wasn't a biography, but it was, uh, it was a memoir that he co-wrote with Michael Bennett of the now Philadelphia Eagles. The name of that book is Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. And it was such a crazy contrast to me. Two different, totally different accomplished football players spanning something like 50 years of the sport and 50 years of society. And I wanted to have Dave on to talk about writing these two books and to actually really get deep inside the Jim Brown biography. Dave, how are you? Oh, it's great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. How'd you, or why'd you decide to tackle Jim Brown, something that uh, literally and figuratively has been really hard to do over the years? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a very basic reason, and that's there's only been one biography written about Jim Brown, and that really shocked me, uh, given his ubiquitous place in the culture over the last 50, 60 years. When you're talking about the NFL, Hollywood, uh, his highly publicized work involved with gang truces, and his incredibly stormy personal life that's involved numerous allegations of violence against women. I couldn't believe that there'd only been one biography written about him. Also, I'm, I'm really interested in the idea of masculinity and the way sports shapes masculinity, like what, it, like how young boys are taught to be men. And I feel like Jim Brown has, in so many respects, laid down the template for that um, because I think the NFL has laid down the template for that for generations of men. Uh, this idea that being a man means that you don't show pain, that you don't show psychological discomfort, that you, uh, that you maintain a sort of stoic outlook onto the world. I mean, that was Jim Brown. The guy missed zero games in his entire NFL career. And as you referenced, is untackleable. But then there's another aspect as well. And I wish I had a shorter answer for why tackling Jim Brown. Well, he contains multitudes. (laughs) He contains multitudes. And there's another thing as well. And that's the way Jim Brown wielded his masculinity as a way to fight racism. You look at his life and anytime he makes any kind of a stance that's anti-racist and he did it very often during his playing years and his post-playing career he always speaks in terms of I will not be treated as anything less than a man Mm -hmm. this is about my manhood my manhood will not be knocked down and he would use that kind of language whether speaking about Art Modell the owner of the Cleveland Browns or a Hollywood executive or speaking about the women in his life and so I wanted to explore this idea of black masculinity and is it a tool for fighting racism or is it something that in the, in the end has the effect of marginalizing black women? And I think it's more than that. The complication is more than that. Good on race, bad on gender. It's mm-hmm. where his politics and thoughts were very complicated, hard to figure out, hard for a biographer to express in a way that was that's necessarily coherent and 
cogent and for readers to really understand. Exactly. And it's like also part of the black freedom struggle uh, recognized as such, uh, but at the same time, somebody who opposed both the teachings and the methods of Dr. Martin Luther King. So, and he said, if I have to march, I'll march alone. So right. he was very dismissive of That's any it. He, sort of he's social. Not, he's not Martin, but he's also very much not Malcolm. So where do No, you he's not him? Malcolm yeah. either. He's not calling for any sort of anti-imperial uprising either. He's calling for um, for black people to invest in small businesses and in their communities. And he, and he put his money where his mouth was. He started a network of what, what, he, what he called black economic unions. He, he's out there in the streets actually trying to work uh, with some of the people who've been the most forgotten or the most demonized in our society, yeah. young people in gangs. I mean, if you just think today about uh, the way Donald Trump speaks about MS-13 and it's like these animals you need, you know, that we need to liberate our cities from and you know, the, the, we're infested with them. I mean, these are the people that, that Jim Brown in the 1980s going to the Bloods and the Crips at a time where there was a similar demonization going on and actually trying to work with them we don't usually associate that with the people who are like conservative. Mm-hmm. And so he's conservative, but he's also working in these spheres. And I think the common thread with all of this has to do with, with masculinity and this idea of this is where you prove yourself as a man, whether it's working with gangs, whether it's uh, Hollywood and the black exploitation era of Hollywood, or whether it's playing in the NFL and refusing to miss a game. Right. And the masculine part of it becomes toxic when you examine his relationships with women. Exactly. And you see this over the course of decades with Jim Brown and and his relationships with women. They're always stormy. As he's gotten older, it's been characterized by a huge age difference. I mean, not that I'm being judgmental about that, but there's definitely a power imbalance in terms of the people that he chooses to be with. And this idea that if they challenge him, it's a challenge to his masculinity. And it's a way of trying to tear him down. And he's articulated this um, over the years. And when he does, you get this kind of shiver up your spine because it's like, okay, that at least when I was writing the book, you know, that same laudable statement of I will not be treated by Art Modell as anything less than a man is something he very easily then moves over towards the women in his life as a way to silence them or treat in a way, if you believe the allegations that have been very violent. Um, And he was raised by women. He was raised essentially, he actually grew up not far from where I grew up in a rich town, but his mother and his grandmothers cleaned the houses of the rich people. That was... That was his lot in life. Some, many athletes, uh, many people grow up in these circumstances and they mm-hmm. don't have quite a, uh, as horrible a relationship with women. What was it about his upbringing, do you think, that imprinted upon him how he would conduct himself from that point forward? Well, this is yet another reason why I can't believe there aren't more biographies of Jim Brown because the upbringing part is fascinating. He spends the first eight years of his life in St. Simon's Island, Georgia, where he's just being raised by uh, his aunt, his grandmother, uh, and his great-grandmother. And his mother leaves him there so she can work as a domestic uh, in, in, in Manhasset in the area of Long Island. And she sends for him when he's eight years old, and he's heartbroken when he gets sent for by his mother. He never calls his mother mom. He never brings himself to be able to do that for the rest of his life because to him, his mothers were the people in St. Simon's Island. And in St. Simon's, it's definitely his rosebud 
like like to use the Citizen Kane reference as mm-hmm. far as like the lost childhood. Like he he thinks about Saint Simon's in this highly idealized fashion. I got him to speak about it a little bit, and his he definitely still gets misty eyed when he talks about it. And and then he goes to Manhasset, and he's living above a garage, and his mom is a domestic, and they have a very stormy relationship that that never really ends but his mother was also very young and so she was still dating and he had great resentment to the fact that she was um social and going out with other men you know under his under as he sought his roof did it surprise you well i don't know where you were on your research but did it surprise you that he came out as pro trump it didn't surprise me at all and it surprised a lot of folks and uh, shocked a lot of folks and i was yeah, you go back and look at my Twitter. I was like, of course he's going to support Trump and because Donald Trump met with him and said to him, I'm going to invest money uh, in community organizations that you think work. Now, there's no proof that any of this has been done, but that's what Jim Brown looks to hear. The other reason why I wasn't surprised at all is when I interviewed Jim Brown, one of the things that did come up was the fact that President Obama never really sought Jim Brown's counsel on anything. Yeah. And President Obama was somebody who seemed to collect the friendships of that generation of athletes. Like he loved being around Bill Russell. He loved being around Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, he gave them both medals for goodness sakes while in office. And yet Jim Brown, who's really the last really politically active person of that generation, he's shut out of the Obama orbit. And that hurt him very deeply. It was very, I mean, it it pained him to be shut out of that. And there's no question in my mind, I have no proof of this, but there's no question in my mind that the reason why he was shut out was because of his history with women and that the Obama people who are very careful about those kinds of optics did not want to be seen as whitewashing that history. So I want to connect it back to Michael Bennett. Uh, This guy is on the forefront of social issues. He's just about the best quote in the NFL. Mm -hmm. And were you working on the books at the same time? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you something that's interesting, though. It's like if if Jim Brown's the past, um, and I've said this, Michael Bennett's the future. I mean, he's incredibly serious about fighting sexism. He's got got, uh, three daughters who he absolutely dotes on. Uh, he speaks openly about books he's reading about intersectionality, which is you know this idea of understanding overlapping oppressions and and standing up for people and with people who may not share your particular identity because you feel this this political connection with them. And he he takes those issues really seriously. And even with all of that, you know, Michael Bennett has. Uh, I think just two framed signed jerseys in his house, and one of them is Jim Brown. Hmm. What did he like about Brown? He saw his politics as being like this person, indomitable person who they tried to tear down because of his beliefs in the black community, and he still stood strong through all of that. Yeah. So like very abstract, very broad, and he's certainly not alone in that at all. Yeah. I would say he's the greatest football player of all time. Uh, Let's think about who else Mm -hmm. might be on this list. And it's guys like Tom Brady or Joe Montana or Lawrence Taylor and Johnny Unitas and Jerry Rice. And it's like, well, what did those guys stand for? What have those guys ever said that's, you know, socially relevant? Mm hmm. That's I think you just nailed it, Mike. I mean, I really do. And Jim Brown is the only person I can think of on the offensive side of the ball who you would describe truly as an intimidator. Yeah. 
I mean, he intimidated people on the offensive side of the ball, and that's something that appeals to people on both offense and defense. Because I'll tell you this about Michael. There's no way he would ever say a quarterback was the best player to ever play. <laughs> no. Never. <laughs> and and someone like Lawrence Taylor, I mean, he would certainly uh, respect. But when you think about somebody like Jim Brown, who you also see as like standing for something, even if you can't articulate what that something is, it's like he's so closely associated with people like Muhammad Ali, with moments like uh, the Ali Summit, where you have Jim Brown sitting at the center of the table with Muhammad Ali and Bill Russell and young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar surrounded by football players, and they, they gather together to support Muhammad Ali and his conviction that he wasn't going to fight in Vietnam. The, these are powerful, iconic moments, and it's very difficult to shake people from that when they have this fixed idea of their icon, which is one of the reasons why when Brown supported Trump, it was such a, a shot to so many people. Like, like, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. In all your time with Jim Brown and studying him, were there issues where you said, I disagree or it's crazy that someone would think like this, but those are his beliefs? And were there some issues where you said, well, I think Jim Brown's full of shit on this one? Uh, to his face? No, no, um, to yourself. And by <laughs> full of shit, I don't mean how could he believe this, that's crazy, but he's taking a, a hypocritical stance on an issue. Mm-hmm. You know, he does this American program with gang youth, and a big part of that program, it's redemptive. And so part of it is taking young people in gangs, and what they have to do to finish the program is they have to actually talk to people that they've hurt and they have to try to make amends with them. And, and so there's a big part of it that has to do with, you know, being open, being vulnerable, and admitting mistakes. And these are things that Jim Brown has never done. And yet he's helped create and spearhead a program that's about other people doing it. And I just think that there's something very deep about that and, and almost Shakespearean in the tragedy of that, that he's moved hundreds if not thousands of people out of gang life through this program. It's been incredibly successful. And yet he does it by um, asking them and to, to subject themselves to a degree of emotionality that he would not subject himself to. That's really interesting to me. And one thing that I, I, if I could talk to Jim Brown again, what I would ask him is mm-hmm. how conscious of you are you of the fact that you're asking people to do things that you don't do? So the Jim Brown book is very much tied up with masculinity. That's the thesis you pursue. That's what he presents to the world. The Michael Bennett book, and just looking at current athletes, sure, there are elements to it, but it's not so much about masculinity. But why shouldn't it be? It seems to me Mm -hmm. like you could make the case that if someone is toxically masculine, as the phrase goes, we would say, well, that's about masculinity. But if someone is progressive in their quote-unquote masculinity, we maybe stop thinking that it's about masculinity at all. Yeah, and I think, Michael Bennett, when you have a football player willing to, willing to cry and speak about his mother and speak about like coming to terms with his mother and, um, and be that vulnerable, I mean, I really think that you have the potential to actually remake masculinity. That's what's so powerful about football. Like when you have football players, as you're starting to see right now, when you have football players talk about seeking psychotherapy, when you have football players talk about issues of racism and police brutality and actually being scared um, of the police, when, when you have football players or, or scared for their kids – when you have football players speak about that in such a way on that kind of cultural platform, it actually, I think, holds the potential to remake masculinity. When you have football players speak out against violence against women, 
I mean, the, the, these are powerful tropes that are getting turned on their heads. And I think Michael Bennett represents the forefront of that. Dave Zirin is the author of, well, just about every sports book that's out oh, these yeah. days, except maybe mine. Dave Zirin <laughs> is the author of Jim Brown, Last Man Standing, and along with Michael Bennett, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. Thanks a lot, Dave. Thank you so much, Mike. And now the spiel. Congressman Jim Jordan has been accused of knowing about but doing nothing about the team physician for the Ohio State wrestling squad in the late 80s through the early 1990s. Jordan was a coach then, and a few wrestlers from that time came forward and they said Jordan must have known that this physician was molesting them. It is hard to credit all the assertions that Jordan must have known as more than assertions. It could have happened. We don't know if it happened. And to some extent, we don't even know who these wrestlers are because many of them have chosen to remain anonymous. But some haven't. The former wrestler David Range, by name, told the Washington Post that wrestlers frequently discussed the abuse they felt at the hands of their physician. Jordan was there in the locker room. Here's a quote. Jordan definitely knew about these things. Yes, most definitely. It was there. He knew about it because it was an everyday occurrence. Everybody joked about it and talked about it all the time. One of his accusers was later arrested on fraud charges. Factor that in however you will. There was another wrestler, Mike Alf, who wrestled on the team from 88 to 92, who said Jordan didn't know about it. He also said, this guy Mike Alf said, he didn't consider Strauss's behavior, that's the doctor, Richard Strauss, he didn't consider the behavior as abuse at the time. Looking back, he realizes it was. And he portrays what happened in the locker room as joking about the physician's weird, inappropriate behavior. But then he said Jordan wasn't aware it was going on. And then he added this quote, I know Jim Jordan, he would do anything to protect us. He's the most honest person I've ever met. Is this one of those Manchurian candidates? Jim Jordan is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life? Or is this an honest assessment? Well, unlike those years old accusations and the charges that a person must have known, we can assess a statement about Jim Jordan's honesty. His defenders, and today Paul Ryan was one, are pointing to that exact quality. Uh, Jim Jordan is a friend of mine. Uh, we haven't always agreed uh, with each other over the years, but I've always known Jim Jordan to be a man of honesty and a man of integrity. Integrity. Honesty. Which is also the term Jordan used in his own defense. Still denying um, that you had any knowledge of what happened. I'm, I'm telling the truth. Look, I... I stood up to the Speaker of the House from my home state, stood up to the IRS, and have stood up to the FBI. Over the last six years, PolitiFact analyzed eight of Jordan's statements. Here's the tally. Three were mostly true, one was all true. Three were half true, and one was mostly false. Hey, that's not terrible for a politician, but it's not great for the most honest person that Mike Alf knows. Then there was Jordan's comportment during the Benghazi hearings here during Hillary Clinton's testimony. He doesn't lie. He just puts forward a motivation for the actions of others, which he couldn't prove, didn't even try to prove. Libya was supposed to be, as Mr. Roskin pointed out, this great success story for the Obama White House and the 
Clinton State Department. And a key campaign theme that year was GM's alive, bin Laden's dead, Al-Qaeda's on the run. And now you have a terrorist attack. It's a terrorist attack in Libya. And it's just 56 days before an election. Trey Gowdy issued the majority report for that committee. The majority report criticized Hillary Clinton, but could not, based on evidence, find wrongdoing. And Trey Gowdy was the Benghazi Torquemada. But Jim Jordan, along with current Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, went out and issued their own report, and it heavily faulted Clinton. They had no additional evidence that Trey Gowdy couldn't get his hands on, but they just used that same amount of evidence, that same quantity and quality of evidence, and they used it to slam Hillary Clinton much, much more than even Trey Gowdy did. Again, it might not be the exact textbook definition of a lie, but doesn't seem that honest. Then there was Jim Jordan's constant criticism of the effects of Obamacare, which was often a criticism not rooted in fact. Here he was on MSNBC last year with Ali Velshi. So yeah, we do think premiums need to come down because they went up so much under Obamacare, three and four times what they were before but Obamacare. But that's, that's just not that's true. Important. That's just not true, Yes, it is true. No, that's just not true. I, I, you don't have these discussions, a, a, but they're not. A 27-year-old single person used to be able to get a, a, a policy for about 100 bucks a month. Today, that same individual is paying three, four hundred dollars a month. I, I'm this, not this I can't I deal this. in macro numbers. I'm sure you know somebody for whom that happened, and I'm sure you know somebody for whom the premium went no, this up. Is ta- this is talking 500%. to people who sell health it. insurance, who are in that business. They know what goes on because they're in that business. Go talk to them. But that's and just not true. To on the the whole, it is true. It's just not true. Them. It's not true. Yes, it is. To summarize, most honest person, Jim Jordan, Obamacare premiums went up because... In his experience, people he talked to told him that they went up for them. It's like Donald Trump's claim that murder was at a 47-year high. It's actually closer to the low. But, you know, don't tell that to the family of a murder victim. And on the topic of Trump's truthfulness and how it reflects on Jim Jordan and claims that Jim Jordan is the most truthful, here was this exchange with Anderson Cooper on CNN a few months ago. Do you think the president lies a lot, like Jim Comey says? I do not. I think Jim Comey has leaked information through a friend to the New okay, York Times. A couple of times, Cooper asked him directly about Trump lying, and Jordan found different ways to change the topic onto someone else who he didn't like, who he thought lied. But come on, I mean, you, you, you got to admit, this president has said things which are just demonstrably not true time and time again. I mean, the list is a very long one, almost on a daily basis. I think Andrew McCabe has said things that aren't true in the inspector. Until finally and plainly, Cooper puts it out there. No, 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 not, not to, to you. Defense. Has the president publicly said anything that is a lie? Well, I, I mean, look, I, I, I don't know of it. Nothing comes to mind, but look. I've long been fascinated by Jim Jordan. He relishes trading barbs. He eschews ever wearing a suit jacket. You're in Congress, dude. Put on a blazer. Jordan's attempted an attack dog style at congressional hearings. He thinks it works well. Freedom Caucus colleagues and outlets like The Federalist and Breitbart seem to agree. None of this means that Jim Jordan knew about abuse more than 20 years ago. And not only do we have to be careful about 20-year-old recollections about third parties, third parties saying what other people must have known, we should also be very humble about the nature of memory. Malcolm Gladwell had a really good podcast about this. But think about what Jim Jordan's defense to all these allegations has been. He hasn't been asserting things like, that's not the way I remember it, or 
I don't think it went down like that, but it is 20 years ago. He's not saying, look, today it's 2018. I can't exactly remember. I think that they might have been joking. I think I might have just chalked it up to chatter or chit chat or rumors. And also, and this is another thing he's not saying, but could, he could be saying, and also let's remember the consciousness we have now about sexual abuse or about doctors abusing athletes or about specifically Big Ten schools harboring authority figures who abuse. That consciousness is totally different from then to now. He's not saying that. Of course, an argument about something like that might rely on something other than black and white thinking, and I think Jim Jordan excels or perhaps can only engage in black and white thinking. And also, to put forth an argument like that, to believe it, you'd have to assume good faith on Jim Jordan's part. And my point isn't that we can't assume that. My point is that Jordan doesn't navigate through the world ever assuming good faith on his political enemy's behalf. If you judge by the Benghazi hearings or the recent Christopher Ray, Rod Rosenstein hearings or his role in the Mueller investigations, Jordan is clearly not a man who believes that people he has political disagreements can ever exhibit good faith. And therefore, you would guess that he wouldn't think that other people would ever assume good faith on his part. So instead, Jim Jordan is arguing, I am honest, I am not lying, and therefore anyone accusing me is lying. And that is his hill to die on. And die on it, he just may. And that's it for today's show. As always, thanks to our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. If you're not a member, learn more at slate.com slash just plus. Just $35 for the first year, and you'll get ad-free versions of this and other Slate podcasts. The Just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who each have two signed jerseys framed in their homes. One, in each one's case, is Jim Brown, and the other jersey is each other. But don't tell them. They don't know. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's thinking of, as a budgetary matter, eliminating the practice of issuing all Slate Podcast producers official team jerseys. The gist, just like Jim Brown got up slow after a hit so he wouldn't tell his opponents if he was hurt, we actually slow down the audio a little so our competitors at 538 and Political Gab Fest don't know if we're hurting. So what you need to do is listen at at least 1.5 speed just to make up for that. And thanks for listening.